listeners, it's Jenners from the Mixtape Memories podcast here to tell you about something positive. Sex positive, in fact. If you're like me, by now you've probably got a lot of time on your hands and are desperately seeking some form of pleasure or a stimulus. Well, I've got this awesome offer for you from our lovely sponsor, AdamandEve.com. Right now, you can select almost any one item for 50% off at adamandeve.com. But, wait, on top of all that, you will also get some awesome free stuff to spice up your bedroom. Enter the code MIXTAPE, that's M-I-X-T-A-P-E, MIXTAPE at checkout and get 10 free gifts. Few special sexy items, plus six spicy movies, and you got a whole evening ahead of you. And also free shipping, can't forget that. Get yourself a gift or surprise your partner or partners as it may be with a gift. And uh, don't forget to put together a special mixtape playlist to set the right mood. Shoegaze, perhaps? The offer code again is mixtape, M I X T A P E, mixtape at adamandeve.com Uh, hello and welcome to Mixtape Memories. I'm Matt Hartspade. And I'm Jenners. We're here today with a very special guest. She's the co-creator of The Daily Show, a renowned comedian, writer, and producer, as well as an amazing reproductive rights advocate and social justice warrior with Abortion Access Front. Welcome, Liz Winstead. Hey! <laughs> Thank so. you so much for joining us. So happy to have you. Um, you know, we're all here in New York City, uh, and we're but we're recording this remotely uh, <laughs> because of COVID nineteen and coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. Um, Liz, how are you doing during this time? You know, I think I'm doing sort of like everyone. I think we've all gone through various phases of of how we're dealing and and what was um funny, interesting, sad, outrageous and now everything and now what's poignant, what's not, you know, I am somebody who is of a certain age, which is why you're having me on your podcast to talk about the mixtapes, but also um you know, as we're looking at COVID ravaging people's lives, um not to start on a downer, but it's very reminiscent of when they were publishing people who were dying of HIV AIDS in the eighties mm-hmm. and you were seeing old acquaintances and loved ones who you hadn't spoken to for a while who had been taken by AIDS. And now it's sort of back in the papers and they're publishing the names of people. And now we have social media. So you're seeing friends and loved ones and, and friends adjacent. So it's um a lot of, it's just a wild ride, man. And the city of New York, I don't know what it's going to be when we're done, you know? So I think nostalgia and looking through things like this are important to, for us to remind ourselves that we've gotten through a lot of stuff and we've had joy and we're going to have joy again and let's celebrate the things that bring us joy. And I love this podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, it is, it feels kind of 
obviously everything is uncertain right now and there's a, a sense of anxiety and I know it's just wild. In my neighborhood, I'm near Prospect Park and uh, I'm not too far away from Kings County Hospital. And the sirens are literally every four or five minutes. In fact, I'd be shocked if we didn't have at least one in the background of this uh, of this recording. It's it's pretty it's wild. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. I am um, I'm the same way in a main thor- near a main thoroughfare, and the sirens are relentless. Yeah, Liz, have you been listening to any music to kind of calm the mood a bit over I the have- last couple of weeks? I have. Um, I mean, I listen to a lot of stuff. Um, in fact, ironically, I have. Um, I, I started cleaning my apartment, and I found this massive box of old mixtapes. Um, that um, mixtapes and just cassette tapes. And so I go on Facebook at three o'clock, and I just. I didn't go through them. Um, I just saw them, and I'm just doing a hand grab, and then talking about the memories associated with the mixtapes that I have for like 30 minutes on Facebook. So it's a really fun companion to be able to do this and go back. And I found like amazing stuff that I forgot I had. Like I have like the demo tapes from Soul Asylum's um, Horse They Rode In On. And I have um, Elvis Costello live from the bottom line in 1977, you know, and go, and I have this like Husker do um, this Husker do. I have never opened it. It was a, extra that you got at their last on their last tour um, compilation of live of songs that they did live so um yeah all this really fun stuff and um and I can't remember um what else is in there and I promised myself I wouldn't look so that it's fresh to me too when I do it on Facebook so Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. been really great so I've mostly been listening to like old funk um, and, and dance and dance music from like the seventies and eighties, um, just so I can get off my ass in my apartment. And, <laughs> yeah. um, I have been a, a devotee of also D nice's dance parties. I think they've been really helpful and fun. Mm-hmm. So I've been, I've been heading over there on Instagram. There's one tonight. I'll be dancing around tonight in my apartment, maybe with Michelle Obama. I don't know. <laughs> so um, but I have been, it's interesting. I haven't been trying to discover any kind of new music, which is interesting. I've been really leaning into, um, music that I can really identify as times of great, great social significance for me. And, um, that brought back a lot of, um, interpersonal memories so I can mm-hmm. hang out to those. So that's kind of where I've been for sure. What's been... What's been like a an artist that you've kind of went back and are nostalgic with right now that's brought you comfort? Well, we'll talk about we'll talk about one of them today uh, for sure. But I was lucky enough to grow up in the Twin Cities in the eighties and nineties in the in you know the heyday of what what was happening in music, um, alternatively in funk and everything. And so I've really been listening to a lot of replacements, a lot of Husker Du, a lot of the funk scene, Prince, the time, and then the like deep cuts of like Alexander O'Neill and Des Dickerson. And, um, you know, there's some old, you know, other stuff, funk that was around um, back in the day that was sort of very regional. So I've been really leaning into my, my old punk rock roots and, and especially um, <clears throat> localized Twin Cities bands. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I was wondering if replacements were going to come up. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because um, I was like, do 
I, I feel like that would have been so obvious for me to pick, um, to pick some, one of the last, you know, recordings from, from them back in the day. And then I was like, I think I'm not gonna, I, I think I'm going to go with something from the beginning of the decade and something from the end of the decade in the nineties. And so that's kind of where we went. And I, and I picked something I really love from the end of the decade that I don't, that's uh, I don't think a lot of people would probably pick. So. Do you remember like the first band that you fell in love with? You know, the, it's funny because I am the youngest of five kids in my family and my oldest sisters are many parents age, you know, my oldest sister's 72. And so, um, I was not allowed to touch their records or their record player. So I would sit outside of their bedroom when about uh, their bedroom, where they have their friends over. And like, so the first person that I loved was David Bowie because they would my sisters had great taste in music and so i mean when i was you know nine years old uh or 10 like i knew the words to every song on hunky dory you know i i would sing along in crazy like lou reed and they really loved glam and really good rock music so i think david bowie was the first person that i love love loved and that I was like so passionate about because um, it got played a lot in my house. Uh, and then subsequently um, I could tell what was going on in my sister's lives. Cause of course they wouldn't ever talk to me by the music they would play. So it would be like, there would be David Bowie going, David Bowie going. And then it would just be bitchy ass sisters and Joni Mitchell playing. So mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, something happened. Some <laughs> boy did something right. And so I think I adopted a lot of my emotional music based on the influences of my siblings. And um, I feel really lucky about that. So, you know, to be able to have Lou Reed and, and, you know, just then old Janis Joplin and um, really good stuff in the house. I feel like I, it put me on a path of really exploring music that wasn't just handed to me or presented to me on the radio, which is really great. Oh, that is great. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Bowie because lately I've been listening to the Let's Dance album a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I think for me, tying it back to what we were talking about earlier, it's been sort of this uh, point of a relief from, from it all, uh, just dancing through it. I feel like I, I'd rather, right now, I'd rather listen to stuff that gets me excited and want to move and, and bring some sort of positive nostalgic energy than to kind of wallow in, in the seriousness of everything going on. You know, I feel the exact same way. And I feel um, Jen and I have had um, many conversations around this, but I am 58 and I am in the sweet spot of age where I have so many incredible memories of seeing so many great bands in small spaces, mm -hmm. in very intimate venues of just, you know, the coming of age of punk rock music and everything in you know, when I think about growing up in Minneapolis and First Avenue, um, the, sh the shows, everything from I saw Tina Turner there and the Waterboys and the replacements a bazillion times and Prince a bazillion times, you know. And so to be able to have um, all of those, to be able to have those conversations with friends around the experiences of all of those shows and what music really meant. And then as a performer, to be able to have stood on that stage, um, it's really, really good to go back and think about being able to see, you know, like Billy Idol and how he had just like 
really terrible hair and that his costumes were like kind of like crappy like it looks really cool in pictures but like close up it was like are those hair plugs like what's going on <laughs> so to be able to have that like proximity um privilege was really incredible so there's a lot of stories to tell and they've brought a lot of joy to a lot of my friends who have been friends with for a really long time yeah, First Avenue, they just celebrated an anniversary, right? Like, Yeah, uh, the 50th anniversary um, was Friday, um, April 3rd, and uh, they, you can still watch it. And they, they did a taped, um, a taped sort of retrospective, and people did live performances, and it was hosted by Harmar Superstar, who I love. And um, a lot of old folks came back from and performed and from their living rooms and people told stories and it was, it was really great. And it was a benefit for all the, you know, musician, one of the musician funds in the Twin Cities uh, for folks who are just struggling right now because of uh, COVID and who've lost work. So yeah, it's it's good. totally check it out. It's so great to see like people just come together like that and like help really help the community that's suffering right now with like live touring and venues and musicians and artists and any kind of live performer really and it's true you know people forget that like and the thing that I think about a lot is um you know when we come out on the other side of this what is going to be the new psyche and norm for people wanting to go to shows are people going to be super freaked out about being around other people you know, not only are we, are we or are we just going to get back to normal and people are going to be like, we got through this and we're going to go back and we're going to support these venues and I'm fine being around people again. Maybe I'll just wear a mask to concerts now. I don't know. You know, how does that muffle laughter for comedians? Is that going to change the dynamic in the way that we do things? There's so many um, psychological ramifications on top of all of the just practical things that we think about that... Um, those are the kind of things that I'm really thinking about more as a performer. Like, what does this all mean? Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think there's going to be a lot of people that are incredibly excited to experience something in a live fashion. Uh, and I think there's also going to be a percentage of people that uh, are, are not going to want to go out for quite a few months more, even once this has kind of dwindled, you know, out of our system. I don't know. No, it's going to be really, um, it's going to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, just like watching all <clears throat> the live streams happen, um, there's uh, both mixed feelings about that, I feel like. Like, sometimes it seems to work. Um, you know, these DJ parties that I've been going to have been uh, super fun. Um but I feel like the comedy stuff that I've seen um, has been kind of mixed. Like sometimes I feel like it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, I feel like that's right too. I feel like for comics, or how I've approached it is to be funny in a different way or you know, to sort of bring your personality out and be not try to tell jokes and do stand-up, but more like my, when I do my mixtape show, or just like relating about something that's silly or whatever. I think that um, I don't think I would do well doing stand up just trying to do a show in my living room. I don't even know. What that <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine just not having the, the you know, the reaction from a live audience. It, it's just wildly different. 
Yeah. So I think ranting and having fun and being a goofball. Um, I don't know if it was saved, but I did watch on Instagram um, a really fun conversation with Mike Birbiglia and Maria Bamford. Mm-hmm. Um, he was doing he's doing these Instagram conversations and he's bringing people on and talking. And she just was in this character and he was just talking to her. And you know how she does those characters and she's so dead on. And she was just this character who was just very, um, very neat. It felt like she she had so much to offer about her validation and feelings around Corona and what she was going through and why she needed the things that she was needing. And it was, it's so funny. I, if it's go search for it. And, and if, if you find it, watch it. Cause it's really funny. It's, it's good. Oh, I will. That does sound funny. Yeah. I wanted to bring the conversation back to the mixtapes. And if you could share a little bit more about um, uh, what kind of stuff you put on it or what kind of stuff uh, other folks put on the mixtapes for you. Did you find it more that you were the receiver of the mixtapes or creating them? How did it kind of work back in the day? You know, the mixtapes that I still have are I would say I don't have any that I made myself so far mm-hmm. in my grab bag, right? That I've grabbed two that were made by a guy who wanted to go out with me and a guy who was going out with me. Okay. So <laughs> two I have found um, so far um, were romancy based um, and um, really interesting. Everything um, the guy that wanted to go out with me actually they were both great mixtapes um the guy who wanted to go out with me um he was more wooing me on look at this wide range of music that i like so it was everything from um nick cave to um hank williams senior to uh the water boys to the buzzcocks to um gun club but he didn't have any women on the mm. mixtape, which <laughs> didn't occur to me until I was talking about it. I was like, I love this mixtape. I love this mixtape. This is great. This is great. And then I was like, there's not a woman on here. <laughs> and then the guy that was dating me, um, he mixed it up a little bit more and it was more romantic. Like uh, he had things like um, um, some like Aretha, that's what I'm gonna do. And then he had um some I'm trying to think what else. Oh, uh God Only Knows by the Beach Boys mm-hmm. and good love songy stuff, some X, which I really love, the X scenes are Vanka's voice. So he had some good mix and he had some women in there, which I was like, Oh, that's why I was dating you and not the other one. Good <laughs> I feel like I feel like he was trying to prove to me that we have stuff in common and put out a great mixtape. Versus a tape of somebody who really likes you and is going out with you and um, wants you to have these feelings. And it was also a long distance relationship mixtape. So it had a lot of, um, of um, you know, sort of songs about longing and that kind of thing. And yeah, it was good. It was fun. It was fun. One was handwritten and then one <laughs> was um, on like old timey computer. Like, you know, just like really- <laughs> hilarious to see something that was on a computer and printed out back in the 90s (laughs) (laughs) do you remember any mixtapes that maybe you made for somebody that you had a crush on you know i i try i do and my guess is that they were loaded with um 
Prince and Billy Bragg mm-hmm. and Roseanne Cash mm. and um, Emmylou Harris and um, I really love Betty Davis. I don't know if you know Betty Davis, but Miles Davis's wife put out two incredible funk records. And if you are a fan of Macy Gray or um, uh, I would say, yeah, you, you'll really like Betty Davis, but really great, gritty stuff. Um, I'm sure that was on there. Um, and so, but I don't remember. I remember I, I have a lot of, the two mixtapes that I have um, is were tapes that I used to go running. Mm-hmm. And, and when I would run, I was a runner for like a year. Um, and they both ended with... Um, with um, Billy Bragg's Great Leap Forward into Hole of the Moon by the Waterboys. So there's like both songs have a build and then like a run and then a slow build and then a run. Um, that was my jam. And I know I had more mixtapes for running. Um, and then, uh, and they all ended with those two songs. So yeah. <laughs> but like making mixtapes was really hard. Well, there was like the chemistry of it all and the order and, and what the sentiment was. There's a lot that goes into it. Really a lot. And you're really thinking about it. And you're really also, I think everybody is self-conscious. Like, is this going to be trite? Is this going to be cool? Are they going to be like completely weirded out? I made this. Like, it's an effort. Like, I did this thing. And, and you make mixtapes a lot of times with intention and hoping that intention is going to be received in a in a good way right Mm -hmm. so i i love that um the anticipation and the innocence of everything around it is very um cool and i don't know what the equivalent of it now is it's like you know i i don't know how it, it really did play a role in courtship and relationship building in i don't know if there's anything that has taken over for it I don't either. I mean, what's your Spotify list? Like, that's not interesting. It's not sexy. No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and also going through, it's very tactile. Also, you know, you would go through, you know, your records, and you would put a song on. And you would um, record the song from the record, and um, you know, and so it was a lot of that as well. You know, just handling things and all of it. So. Yeah. designing it yeah. <laughs> like oh, i used to God. draw on that's right what raw artwork it? <laughs> you know i don't know if anybody ever like responded to any of my romantic mixtapes so <laughs> i don't really? think they very successful <laughs> well what did you put on them jen do you remember uh yeah once i had um a crush on a professor in college and i made him a mixtape <laughs> oh god <laughs> But it was all like things that I thought maybe he would like. He was older, so. Oh my god! <laughs> it might have like, so Ella, <laughs> like Ella Fitzgerald and Billy. <laughs> oh my god! He was probably like, "Oh my god!" She thinks I'm a fucking ancient. Picture <laughs> 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 Walker on the outside of the mixtape. It's called insure. So I can insure you into my life. <laughs> it's really funny now that I think about it. 
Also, professors just wanted you to fuck them. You could have just saved the show. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. Time. It's true. I think it came out later that he was sleeping with his students. <laughs> this is not me. Um, but <laughs> Oh my god. Um, well how else back then did you like discover music? Uh I think, you know, the good news is independent record stores were incredibly important and we had very strong independent record stores. And like I said, I have this unique experience of being in Minneapolis. And so Twin Tone Records, which is the you know, record label that made um all the replacements records and the early cell asylum records and um you know husker du records were were housed in it was a record it was a studio and a record company and it was across the street from the coolest independent record store so there was a scene happening constantly so definitely that the weird thing was minnesota didn't have a great independent radio station for a long long time oh wow yeah, until the mid-90s, I think, or towards the end of the 90s, they did not have one. And now they have a great one called The Current, which you can stream. And I highly suggest if you are looking for good radio, um, The Current is where it is, is incredible. Yeah, I've booked a couple sessions with my day job. I'm the music publicist, arts publicist, and uh, I've booked some sessions on NPR, and it's, it's, uh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Oh, but what was cool, I think... I think the coolest part of how I discovered music was because there was such a strong music scene and strong comedy scene in the Twin Cities, we were all working together at the same restaurants in the, doing it for our day jobs. And so we would fill in for each other's shifts and the musicians would come and see the comics and the comics would go see the musicians and we were always on everybody's guest list. And so um, just through community, people would um, introduce us to music and then we would introduce each other to music and bands. And then a lot of the bands would go out on the road and come back and say, oh, we worked with these guys and they were great. Um, and sure enough, um, but mostly for me, it was going into record stores a couple times a week and just um, asking folks what came in, what they like. And if you talk to people enough at a record store, they really get to know your taste and they'll recommend stuff. And that was really fun. And in-stores, ugh, in-stores were the best. Oh, I miss in-store performances. <laughs> so much. Were there in-stores at Electric Fetus? Oh, yeah. The Fetus had in-stores. Um, Garage Door had in-stores. And this record store called Orfolk Jokofis, which was a great um, indie store as well. And so, yeah, they all of the record stores that were indies in the Twin Cities would do um, in-stores which is really great. Yeah, I have memories of going to in-stores at Virgin Megastore Union Square back in the day, even some at Times Square. Um, but yeah, I haven't been to an in-store in quite some time. I mean, there are so few places to go to an in-store because there are so few independent record shops left in New York. Tower know? used to do them too, that Tower record store. Uh, oh yeah, I saw Scissor Sisters there back in the day. Yeah, I, uh -huh. I used to live on the block from there. And, that, and then the no-name records across the street was great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think yeah. other music used to do or Other music, though. that's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, other music. Yeah, and like um, back in the day in Williamsburg when Soundfix Records used to be there, they used to have in-stores as well. Mm -hmm. But 
Um, you know, I feel like you don't really hear about that that much. And I like the Amoeba Records, like they're going, you know, um, into extinction. I feel like right, they're like closing down and stuff. So I feel like the whole independent or record store is just sadly kind of dissipating. It's really sad because to be able to have um, access to people who passionately love music and want to talk to anybody about it and find out what you like and passionately talk to you about that is an art form that is will be sadly missed. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just makes me feel like, especially for people who are um, not social creatures, and have a hard time and and oftentimes music is a real solace to find those communities of people who can talk about music because it's where so much communication and emotion happens um to remove those um access points is really sad yeah i agree i agree i mean matt do you see like any kind of equivalent today when you're like booking kind of musicians and places i like... mean not really i mean we've we've spoken about this at various other points of the you know over the last season and a half and i just feel like um uh I, so much of, of new music that's coming out now is is almost built to be disposable you know that there isn't you you don't have that same connection that you that you would have um i don't know it's disappointing it's it's, it's for me it's kind of a sad state right now uh, and i don't know what the equivalent is to answer your question yeah, I think that that's in the, I feel like that's true and I feel like where's the space to be a touring musician and have this sort of solid interesting life that you can live and make records and sell out, you know, 4 or 500 seat venues um and in big cities you can perform at a, you know, 1000 seat space. You know, I feel bad that with without record stores and without being able to nurture those kind of um those kind of careers it's a bummer you know that you can't have specialty acts that you love that will exist because everybody's got to make everybody money and mm-hmm. that means really trying to be accessible to everyone which is impossible exactly yeah. um uh, but yeah i remember just back in the day picking up a magazine whether it was you know a british publication like q or nme or whether it was looking through all the billboard charts when i was a teenager um i don't know but there was this excitement and then i'd want to seek out you know and find out well who is pulp exactly and you Mm -hmm. know i'm gonna buy their album and i'm gonna spend time learning about them and and the you know jarvis cocker's whole shtick and, and whatnot i feel like there isn't that um like learning curve with a band or the patience with a band. Now it's just kind of everything is so immediate and then kind of disappears quickly. I don't know. That's my view. Yeah. And I remember, you know, looking when they would sell the village voice at the newsstand downtown in Minnesota and I would, you know, you'd go pick it up and you would just look at the ads in the back of the clubs and like every cool person, you know, was performing all at once. And I remember just like feeling overwhelmed about like wanting to move to New York so desperately and being like, how will I ever exist? if I ever live there, because I will just have to see every show. (laughs) That was how we were. Exactly. We were out every night at a show. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember, like, planning, you know, planning it out way in advance. (laughs) Like, be like, oh, this person's coming in two months. I have to go buy that ticket. 
And, um, you know, like, I don't really do that anymore. I know you get older. I know. I feel lucky, too, having lived in a place like Minneapolis where a lot of people came through as well. Mm-hmm. And then working at First Avenue on top of it, it was like I got to see so many shows for free in lieu of my academics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to hear, like, your favorite memory from First Avenue. Uh, my favorite memories from First Avenue are hands down the Secret Prince shows. Mm. And... Um, he did 12 of them. I think I was at 11 of them. I might have been at all 12, but I would I don't know for sure. Um, and the, the, the biggest memory that stands out is I've seen a million different incredible shows there. Um, you know, U2's first tour, R.E.M.'s first tour, like every band, you know, out Oasis, all of it. But um, the coolest show ever was Prince did a benefit for the ballet company in the Twin Cities. And it was, I got on the guest list and somebody sent me a picture of the guest list, which is really great. Mm. And um, it was during the time, he was doing the 1999 tour. And um, he got on stage and played five new songs that nobody ever heard. And they were five songs from Purple Rain. Mm. He opened up Mm. the show with Purple Rain. Wow. yeah, and there's video. Somebody filmed the show, and I've seen clips of this video, and it's so otherworldly to watch people watching Prince, A, with no cell phones. That's bizarre. But B, with no recognition of the song Purple Rain. So you have an audience full of people just staring. And, you know, Purple Rain has that, like, four-and-a-half-minute open of just instrumental open and people just staring like, what is this? Like what's happening? Yeah, that sounds a little surreal. (laughs) It was surreal. Um, It was surreal. And um, my favorite moment of the night is that he covered Joni Mitchell's The Case of You, Mm. which is one of my favorite songs. And then he did it um, acoustic guitar and it was incredible. So that is my most cherished memory of seeing something at First Avenue. But, um, you know, there's been so many shows there that i i i've seen every single person um almost in in rock that i've ever wanted to see and that's a pretty big statement you know i saw that i mean it's it's wild but i'm and and a lot of them at that venue at first avenue so um you know when i think about it i sort of gobsmacked at and of how many people we've lost you know to see the replacements with bob stinson and to see vic chestnut and to see um you know so many people who's could do um you know which who have members that are gone now and it's really sad prince for god's sake you know yeah i'm wondering how those prince shows all differed from each other i mean you don't have to go into all the details of all of them but I mean, he would pretty much do, for example, one set that was perhaps more rock oriented and then sort of a funky one and then maybe a piano one. Is that correct? So well, he would. Yeah. And what would happen was um, I was lucky enough to know because I worked there. So um, there would be variations on what was going to happen. But how it normally went down is there was a grapevine where people knew and then the doors would close at about 11. Um, they wouldn't let anybody else into the club. Um, because they knew and then Prince would either have full band or just do an acoustic set 
or try out some stuff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it would go way past bar close and sometimes it would be an hour. And so it really varied. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, but he would just decide what he wanted to do and nobody really knew what was going to happen other than he was going to happen. So that's um, enough. <laughs> that's enough. It is totally enough. Yeah. So, and then there was all these weird after parties before he, before he built Paisley park, he had this weird um, warehouse um, that he rented and he would have these parties like where he would just have beds everywhere and people would just be laying around drinking and like there was tigers walking around one of them. And I mean, it was, well i mean it's prince you have to expect the extravagance and flamboyance of it all (laughs) and he would never attend in the in the sense of participating he was always observing or performing but there was never like talking to prince or hanging out with prince i think that um when people start getting into the whole i really knew prince it's like did you because i don't Mm -hmm. feel like hardly i feel like his personal life was so close to the vest that um, um, he really wanted to bring joy. And he would be, it was so weird because you would go to First Avenue and go dancing. Um, on the, I think they had at the time, Mondays and, Mondays and Thursdays were, I think it was Mondays and Thursdays, were the night that there would be a concert in the main room. And then um, it would be a dance party um, the rest of, the time and he would come down and stand in the dj booth and just watch people dance wow a couple nights a week that's intimidating (laughs) yeah yeah it was it was wild i mean he was in the club four nights a week is my guess just like walking around and being at the club with his bodyguard who looked like santa Um, (laughs) scanning chick um yeah Well, I feel like that's a good way for us to segue into our first repeat skip, um, sure. which is uh, Prince and the New Power Generation's uh, 1991 album, Diamonds and Pearls. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, what what's your memory of, uh, of this release, Liz? So what's interesting about this release is that um, I chose, we were talking about it and it came out in the 90s and I wanted to do early uh, a selection from the early 90s and then from the later 90s this is not one of my favorite prince records um i think diamonds and pearls is a gorgeous song um but i do like the introduction of michael bland on the drums michael bland's an incredible drummer and so this song a record is i feel like this record is sort of retro in a way um and some of it with a fail and some of it great um the videos from this record are god awful yeah. <laughs> i am yeah. about so terrible like um shocking actually um but uh i think um it, it was the you know it was a record that came out like right it was the first time since the revolution that he actually credited his band um it was a whole new band it was it came out right after that shitty um cherry moon movie and so, um, and that was a bomb. Like that was embarrassing for Prince. So this record mm-hmm. was a big deal for him to do something with. Um, and I think, you know, Diamonds and Pearl, I think the song had a couple big hits on it. Um, I yeah, can't... I looked on Wikipedia and I think 
like six or seven singles were released from this album, even though yeah. I don't think they all were huge hits. No, uh-uh. I think Diamonds and Pearls was a big hit. Yeah. Um, and then um, Push was a big, kind of a big song. And then the worst song that of Prince is on this record. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for, with this album, I feel like he was, go- like, for me anyway, it seems like he was going in the early stages of experimenting with various um, things outside of the pop bubble. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it worked with, with, with mixed success. Yeah. I think he was trying, you know, I mean, as, as we watched the rise of hip hop happening right then, um, he, I think he was trying to integrate that. I think he was going back to some old roots of, of um, his sort of influences of Sly and his influences of, Carlos Santana and um I think you can hear um some of that and um and I think introducing this new band too um and a new set of singers um I think the thing that was just super weird about Prince is that like every woman looks exactly the same all the time (laughs) in every video like he has a type yes and it's so um alarming after <laughs> <laughs> because they also vaguely look like him yes right <laughs> so um yeah but i think that diamonds and pearls is a perfect song so on a record that i feel like is wildly inconsistent and and has some ups and downs i think that song is a perfect song and so like Push is also, I just love. And so those two are the songs that I would listen to over and over again. But I do think that Diamonds is One Pearls is just the song that I would go back to constantly from this record. Jen, what do you feel? Um, my repeat was, uh, I had, well, it was between two songs, actually. It was like, I, I, I do actually like Cream. But I think it's really funny because I was like reading about it while I was listening to it today. And um, apparently he said he wrote that song while masturbating. (laughs) Well, and that video in particular is so cheesy 90s. And they're literally putting whipped cream on their fingers and putting it in each other's mouths. And it's like, and 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 then there was some article that was like, this song is not about sex. And I'm like, oh, really? What else is it about? Cream? You think it's a song actually about cream? <laughs> I just like the silkiness of the the music, uh, you know, versus maybe the uh, the actual content of it. <laughs> like, um, but also, actually, I was um, I was actually into Money Don't Matter tonight, so I actually think like um, that's a good actually, political song. Yeah, like really listening to it like song. today, like it had like such a strong like I don't know resonance for me like it was just like um really speaking to me so well it's was... funny Jim because I bet you thought I was gonna pick that song um, <laughs> as my repeat but you know here's the truth that song the messaging in that song is incredible but I don't love the song the way mm-hmm. I love sign of the times mm-hmm. um as a mm. political song or a controversy as a political song um I I just didn't, that song didn't grab me in a way that it should have considering the messaging in it. Yeah, it's true. Like the music is 
pretty um, lax, but uh, I actually didn't mind that though. I I was just rolling with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, this this record doesn't have a get off your ass and just you're gonna run to the dance floor moment on it Mm-mm. for me. No, no, it was um, kind of all over the place. Yes, a hundred percent. And not to like you know, and I and it's funny because I don't think. I'm glad that this was the record we're talking about because it's it's very rare that you have a conversation around um, what are the Prince songs that didn't hit for you um, yeah. because you can have such a wild um, mixtape of Prince songs that are all genius and Prince is my, without a doubt, without a question, like Desert Island artist. Mm-hmm. I would just be fine if that's all I could listen to is Prince. Um, and but yeah, this album is um, is so like you said, all over the place. What was your skip on this album? Oh, Jughead! I mean, stop it. <laughs> and, and the thing about it, it's a bummer, is that it starts out again with Michael Bland on the drums being amazing. It like if if you feel like, oh, are you gonna go into some like cool, like serious, like um, Johnson Brothers kind of like cool thing? Um, 70s funk and that just goes into like stupid lyrics and shit I don't care about yeah <laughs> yeah, that wasn't one of my favorites either uh, what did you love What what's your love on this my love actually it's probably the title track diamonds and pearls also um, this is an album that my boss plays a lot in the office which is maybe slightly <laughs> inappropriate <laughs> so I actually know this album much better in now than I did in the 90s um and yeah, so Diamonds and Pearls is, is probably my favorite. And then I would skip Strollin just because I feel like I'm not moved by that song at all. Right, right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm with you. It is, um, it is just, uh, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag for sure. But it's worth, Diamonds and Pearls is worth every note, every single note, you know? So I'm just like, I love it so much, that song. That I kind of feel like all's forgiven. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I gotta say, I'm not usually into ballads, but I feel like that is a perfect ballad. I agree, and just that whole diamonds and pearls, yeah. you know, like way it goes is like, and it's and it's even cheesy, and I still love it. Like diamonds and pearls, okay, really, um, but I still love it. I still love oh, it. Oh well, actually, uh, I was reading that the, the uh, song was named after two of his dancers <laughs> uh, one he would call diamond and the other one he would call pearl <laughs> oh and they're actually on the album cover and they're in the music videos for cream and get off oh yeah, yeah. and they look just like vanity and apollonia and sheila e and every other woman that's uh-huh. other thing Pre- pretty much <laughs> yeah amazing yeah well do you want to talk about our next uh album yes sure do you want to bring it up or do i bring it up well um i was pretty excited when uh you chose this one um because uh i'm sure matt you too were really into this album hedwig and the angry inch yeah um and I want to be clear, it's the off-Broadway cast soundtrack that okay. I am specifically talking about. 
Okay. Yeah. Because there's a few versions out now, so yeah. or probably even more than that. Yeah. <laughs> and I saw Hedwig 13 times. Wow. I saw every Hedwig, um, starting with John Cameron Mitchell and Michael Cerberus and Ellie Sheedy. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so um, it was, for me, just this transcendent musical about people who were queer and othered and you know, living in the margins and it was also a rock opera and it was also, um, it had so many emotional twists and turns and I, um, I wish I would have seen them workshopping it down at Jackie 60 because that would have been really cool to see back in the day, Stephen Trask and John working this out. But, um, it is a beautiful story of pain and love and, um, being an outsider and to me it's just um i i it was i was having a really hard skip one on this um the song that i play over and over again is um it's a cross between wicked little town and origins of love Mm -hmm. and and i would say origins of love won by a hair Mm -hmm. of repeat for me how about you guys jen yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I picked Origin of Love, but like, I, I do, um, I do, I was kind of oscillating between that and uh, Wicked Little Town too. So like, um, the, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just, I just have, I wish I had seen the Broadway version of this, but I, I just wasn't hip to it um, at the time. Um, and I got more into it when it became like a film. Mm-hmm. And then I was obsessed with it and I would just watch it over and over again, <laughs> like on my laptop. Um, and uh, and I just have these memories of seeing like the visuals for when that song comes on. And then just being really into like the, the love message in it. Um, so that one is always going to be like a repeat for me, I think. But obviously, also, um, I, I can be pretty basic sometimes. And Wig in a Box also. Well, kinda, that's a great track. I mean, it's so <laughs> fun. And live, like, it's so empowered. Like, I feel like Wicked Little Town and, and Wig in a Box, when they, when, when they reprise them both, is like so emotional. Yeah. You know, and especially, yeah. And that is so great. So many like sing alongs to that song, and yeah, um, and I also like remember I uh seeing like Polyphonic Spree at like Summer Stage, and John Cameron Mitchell came out, and they all sang Wig in a Box, and I just mm. like lost my mind. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so many memories on that. Um, Matt, so I mean, Hedwig has such a special place in my heart that it's tough to kind of summarize it in you know in a few sentences um the i first was introduced to hedwig when the film came out i was in college and i was coming out and i was confused and all that kind of stuff and i saw the film and i was just like a mess and um since that moment i've just been uh beyond a hedwig fan i used to go to the midnight showings of the film at ifc um and then i saw i only saw it once on broadway when it was revived i saw it opening night with um uh neil patrick harris um which was great but i feel like they were still working out the kinks a little bit um 
it's also very tough for me to pick like a favorite and a least favorite since I love this entire uh, collection of songs. But I think if I were forced to, I would probably also pick Origin of Love um, and also Midnight Radio. Um, mm. I feel like uh, that moment in the script is just such a oh. high emotional uh, I, I don't know. Just like talking about it gets me a little verklempt, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I was I was messaging Jen earlier. Like this morning, I was re-listening to Origin of Love, and I was just like, I was kind of bawling sitting at the kitchen table by myself. That song has just so much power to it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I would probably skip Freaks if I were forced to, but I mean, I, I don't dislike the track. Yeah. I had a hard time picking a skip, too. Um, actually. And then the more I listened to all the songs, the more I liked them even more. <laughs> so it was like I really know. hard. <laughs> and, but yeah, if I was forced to, maybe Freaks. Um, I picked yeah. Hedwig's Lament. Mm. Because I yeah. feel like the emotionality throughout the whole play and throughout all the music, that to me is just a, a, a overview of the entire inside of Hedvig um, I could skip that and go right into um, um, the second part of that Mm -hmm. um, all because of you Um, and so for me that's the only reason that I would say is because I feel like I get that in other spaces Um, but yeah I know it's really like that one was really a hard one to um, to not have a pick of passing because I just start to finish that was i think that's the record that i listened to most for a long time mm. and um it's just beautiful start to finish and i will say in in blasphemous terms that i feel my favorite headwig was michael Cerverus. Mm. oh um, wow yeah john was great 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 but um and i don't know i i don't know what it is about Michael Cerverus, but um, I loved Michael Cerverus as Hedwig. Ali Sheedy was something to see. Mm. It was bizarre. I'm not sure I loved it. Yeah. Because it was so different, but um, it was interesting. And that, and uh, Miriam as Yitzhak is just incredible. Her voice is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the whole thing was just the best yeah yeah this whole yeah. this whole piece is just a masterpiece in my in my view i am yeah. still with you 100 percent, and it was um, a really good way to go out of the decade yeah yeah you know, i think yeah. it was you know 1998 was it that it came out and yeah 98 99 something yeah like that. yeah and, um just so beautiful and and also in in one of those things that like this has never been done really before, you know, and to have something that was such an interesting, fresh piece of theater that yeah. was performance and storytelling and a musical and a rock show mm-hmm. and a glam rock show. It was just, there was just everything that I love um, rolled up into um, this thing. I think also, like, I was reading, it was kind of like the first Broadway production that really kind of crossed over, like, rock, you know, with musical, um, where, like, 
it appealed to a much broader audience than yeah. like a normal musical would have. I think that's right. And I think everybody was sort of shocked by it. Yeah. Um, I, I know. I, I wish I had seen it in the 90s. Yeah, <laughs> like, that would have been so amazing. But yeah, I, 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 like Matt, only saw it in the, you know, more current kind of revival. Um, and, but I did get to see it with John Cameron Mitchell uh, somehow. Like, he had broken his leg or I something. Saw that, I saw it when he had the broken leg, too. Yes, and he just made it work. He worked it in. It was so <laughs> funny. And it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, and I think, um, you know, it was great. I, and again, it goes back to, like, me being able to see it in the 90s was just that being born in a sweet spot of things that are, it's incredible. And I'm really sad because I'm not sure that the Jane Street Theater ever recovered after um sandy mm. and i and i because it, it was a beautiful small theater and yeah. it's the perfect place for that show to start and it would be such a great place for so many shows to workshop and i think it never recovered i'm curious about that but yeah yeah um i i think it's fascinating to see how it was able to come back and make this kind of revival but also like um i saw that like a production of it went to like korea south korea which i found fascinating mm -hmm. <laughs> like, wow. um like never would i have thought something so you know um gender bending kind of production would actually go to a country that i i I view is a little conservative so <laughs> I was just like I feel like um the times have really progressed where something like that could happen is kind of just like really interesting I agree I didn't I didn't know that yeah me neither that's wild it's totally wild so cool. um but uh yeah no Hedwig I mean I feel like it'll live forever <laughs> Yeah, you know. I do too. Just, I mean, and think about it. It's, uh, let's see, twenty years old, right? But, yeah. And it's still incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, it just holds up so well. I think. So well. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine. Like back then, was it like super controversial? I think it was in the sense of, you know. We didn't, people didn't know about transgender people and used the, you know, slurs and said transsexual or transvestite or, you know, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of, of conversation, language, knowledge around the pain and existence and world of trans folks. So I think it was, um, I think that the messiness of, the life of Hedwig was possibly considered like kooky and eccentric rather that to the outside world, rather than this is a painful experience for somebody who's going through something um, that is what a lot of people go through, you know, yeah. when you're not born in the body that you, that you identify with, yeah. you know? And so I think that there was um, a sensational draggy appeal 
Um, but I think that the underlying pieces of it for the people who, like the three of us, who understand just humanity and live amongst people who are experiencing different levels of humanity and how they're treated in the world by who they are. Um, I think that's why it so profoundly affects people like us because it's hits you in the gut in a way that um, even if you didn't care and just love the music, the next level of exploring that experience um, is interesting. And also the humor of it, you know, the fact that like the wall came down like right after the crazy fucking watch thing, you know, yeah. all of that. Um, and then ending up in Kansas and just having uh, yeah. Worst. yeah. <laughs> Matt, did it like strike you like, uh, you know, in a particular way, like back then? I think immediately it did. And to this day it does actually my, my sentiment and, and my reaction to the songs and the film and, and seeing the show, you know, on Broadway and that revival, it's all, it's all the same for me. It's all just like, um, I don't know. It kind of tears me apart, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, just like, but on <clears throat> like a more personal level, like, um, did it like have any kind of effect on you? Um, oh, you mean like sort of as I was coming out and whatnot? Yeah. Um, I think for me, yeah. I mean, I never really thought about it too much, but I think, um, just seeing, I, I don't know, for some reason, I, I think uh, part of the reason why probably a lot of people are so enamored with, with the character, uh, with the role, with the, with the show, is just because they see a sense of Hedwig in them, like Liz was saying, kind of that outsider status, but also kind of um, championing through and, and just being your true self. And I think I wasn't living my true self, and I think that's what um, I kind of connected with. Like, maybe I can do this, I, and I should move forward with and not hold back with who I am. And I, I think that's probably what I related to on a more personal level. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, I, I want to go back and really take it in now, especially um, seeing who we are as a society and how we feel about immigrants and how we feel about people who have fled oppression and trying to make a life for themselves and who takes advantage of them and how they're demonized. You know, like it's that story is, it has changed a lot, especially because I think Americans have gotten more callous and colder in a lot of ways when it comes mm -hmm. to that. And so, you know, it's just kind of like, where are we at? Who are we? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like that's a really good way to end this episode. Yeah. This so fun. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, thanks so much. Dream for dream Thank you. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> oh, we have so much to talk about. Well, anytime, you know, maybe um, we should do it again after I go through my cassettes and I can figure out my two most, we can have a conversation about the two most amazing mixtapes that I found in my collection. Yeah. Perfect. Well, welcome back anytime. Uh, welcome <laughs> so much. Thank you for just making this joyful podcast to listen to so we can talk about things that are good and cool. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us on Mixtape Memories, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.